You're listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks. Welcome to episode 79 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson. Applying for a trademark is often something that we don't think of straight away. I think many of us and probably many of our clients assume that registering a business name is all it takes. And it might, but then again, it might not. To better understand why you and I and our clients should or shouldn't consider registering a trademark, I went to meet with Aaron Walters of IP Australia in Canberra. My first question to Aaron is whether one needs to study law to join IP Australia as a trademark expert. Here's Aaron. We take people from all backgrounds. That's the sort of great thing about trademarks examination is that the way that it works and some of the things that you need to do when you're assessing an application, they require a really broad range or diverse range of experience. So there are people like myself that come from law backgrounds. I know some people have come from teaching backgrounds. I know some people have come from design backgrounds. So, yeah, we have a broad range of experience that comes into trademarks. Because that actually reminds me of something I only realized yesterday when I was watching some of your videos, and that is that you can actually trademark movements yeah. and smells. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that when, until now when I thought of a trademark. I always just thought of a logo and mm -hmm. a name. Yeah. I never thought of anything else. Like a trademark is defined under the trademarks legislation as a sign, and that sign can comprise any combination of or single word, sound, movement. So there are sound marks as well and packaging or combinations. So lot pictures and, and words together. And there's a broad range of protection that's available or a broad range of things that can be protected under the act. Hence the need for trademark examiners that come from a wide, diverse background. trademark attorneys mainly help with trademark disputes or are trademark attorneys also involved assisting with the application? Trademark attorneys appear to help with uh, both the application process and I also see them in the dispute or in the opposition side of things as well. And are you involved with disputes? At the moment, yeah, I'm a hearing officer. Uh, so, But that's only disputes during the application process, isn't it? When the uh, trademark is registered... And then a dispute comes up, then that's outside in the courts. That doesn't really affect you, does it? It you depends are... on what it is. So okay. um, there are definitely there's so you can have oppositions to trademark acceptance or trademark registration. That would affect you. Yep. Um, but you can also then have things uh, such as non-use or removal applications. That, that would also affect you. Yeah. If the trademark owner wishes to oppose an application that someone has made to remove their trademark, then. Uh, that would commence and they request a hearing with IP Australia, then that would be a matter that would come yeah. before me as well. Yeah, and then you're basically like the judge in, in this. I mean, you make the final decision. Not you personally, but IP Australia as a government body. Well, I, myself as a delegate of the registrar, so my, my, my power to make a decision um, under the legislation is essentially exercising the registrar's power as, a, as one of her or given the new, uh, we've got a new registrar coming in, his um, delegate or his power under the, um, the legislation. Then you're still involved, but once the trademark is registered and then somebody thinks that their trademark is infringed yep. and then they enter a dispute, yeah. that doesn't affect you, that's out in the court. Correct. So infringement, or so trademark infringement is dealt with under a different section of the legislation, so 120, uh, section 120 of the Act. I see. Which act is it? Uh, the Trademarks Act, oh, okay. 1995, yeah. So, uh, yeah, infringement of a trademark is handled under uh, the, that particular section, and that's much more in the domain of the courts. The Trademark Act, 1995, is that a piece of legislation that's quite easy to read, well-written, or is it more like the FBT Act that you have to read <laughs> 15 times and you still don't know what they're saying? I personally, I find reading the trademarks legislation uh, to be a lot uh, a lot simpler than other pieces of legislation out there. Another piece of legislation that I look at quite a bit is the Corporations Act. 
It's a lot more complicated. There's a lot of complex, there's a lot of moving parts that go on with the corporation's legislation. and So the Trademark Act is a lot more straightforward. So somebody, somebody who's not a trademark attorney sitting down and reading that, <laughs> if you're inclined that way, yeah. would probably get something out of it. You know, maybe not understand the finer points, but understand the rough picture. I, I like to think so, yeah. And certainly we see a lot of uh, self-represented um, individuals uh, who engage with the process here at IP Australia and um, and they range from people who have very little experience and very little knowledge of the requirements to people that have quite extensive experience and quite extensive knowledge of the requirements as well. I mean, as with any piece of legislation, there are terms that have a broad or myriad sort of judicial consideration that come with it, things like substantial identicalness or deceptive similarity, which are tests that we have to apply in the examination uh, on the examination side of things. Um, that's got many, many years, in fact, decades of uh, judicial consideration behind in those. Case law. Yeah. And those are all things that we learn in becoming an examiner. Um, and as I said, that it forms or that aspect of things forms one of the, I guess, two major areas in which uh, of examination that examiners assess every application under. IP Australia sits underneath the Department of Innovation and Industry. Uh, we're a public uh, institution. We administer uh, intellectual property rights that can be registered. We're also one, like Australia's leading body on uh, intellectual property policy. We have both a domestic and an international side of things. One side of us uh, looks to the registration of intellectual property and another side of us looks to policy surrounding legislation or intellectual property initiatives, uh, what direction we go from a domestic, a domestic point of view, as in within Australia, and what direction we want to take from an international point of view. Intellectual property is uh, an intangible piece of property. By intangible, it's not something that we can physically hold. Generally, there are, we sort of look at things, you've got the four kind of main ones that pop to mind are you've got copyright. Uh, that's not something that IP Australia deals with. Oh, really? it's, it's not a registered right. Otherwise, you would die in detail. So with copyright, again, it's uh, copyright is a legislation that underpins copyright law. It's a common law thing. So if you suspect that there's infringement of your copyright, you would engage an attorney or seek to prosecute that or protect that outside of IP Australia with the courts. It's a different court system. It's not administered by IP Australia. Not at all. It's completely different. I mean, while it does fall underneath intellectual property, it's just not a registered right. So it's not something that IP Australia really has purview of. I see. So IP Australia only does registered IP rights. We tend to focus, yeah, on things like trademarks, which is one uh, registered right, patents, uh, designs. So when uh, an application for a design will often feature a specification of the way that it looks, a, a diagram of the way that it looks. The designer of a chair kind of like creates a fairly um, unique unique look because that, it needs to be a unique look. If it just looks like a normal chair, then yeah, you can't register. It, there's it? there's a number of sort of things that need to be checked before it tries to protect stuff that is unique. Yeah, you can't register a chair with four legs, and then after that, nobody can ever produce chairs with four legs. The whole thing about a registered right, or the whole thing about intellectual property, is that you're looking to uh, gain an exclusive use of that particular property. Therefore, it needs to be unique. Yeah, there is an aspect of that needs to be unique. It needs to be new. Patents is basically how something works, isn't it? Patents is an invention. There's a couple of types, like something that's like an innovative invention or an innovative patent, which takes something that exists but adapts it in a new way. Um, or you can have uh, an invention that's that's brand new, or a patent for an invention that's brand new.
things like trademarks, things like your brand, they're also, they're very difficult. They are valuable, but they're something that's very difficult to quantify how valuable they can be. I mean, you know, inherently that the mega brands out there are, would be extremely valuable. In fact, probably more valuable than anything else, brick and mortar or anything mm. like that. But again, trying to put a, like trying to quantify it in any sort of I guess reasonable way is a, is a difficult task. So sometimes this may not even be like a pecuniary value, but also kind of the brand represents the amount of time and investment and, and blood, sweat and tears that have gone into establishing a, a business. And so like they, it becomes somebody's baby. People take so much ownership of them. And, and in that sense, of course, that would be very difficult to like, you can't quantify um, you just can't quantify something like that. It, it is it is important because it is important. As I can imagine emotions can run very high in disputes. Sometimes there are a lot of emotions behind uh, the application process or an opposition process that can come to a forefront. Particularly, you know, an examiner will have lots of interaction with, uh, or can have lots of interaction with the customers who are applying for trademark uh, for their trademark, and you know, sometimes they will. They've applied for something and they'll get a re report back, which is raising barriers to their acceptance of their registration. And and they get really upset. They get they can get really upset because this 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 barrier represents another hurdle that they have to get over, and they don't know whether they'll be able to get over that. And then there could be lots of time spent or money already spent in uh, investing in that particular brand. We we have to balance that that role of protecting what's already on the register but also trying to uh, allow people to register new trademarks one of the things that we often get from customers from applicants is a little bit of confusion about what a trademark is and how that might be different to a business name or a company name or say their domain name so often we'll get Customers who say, "Oh, but I've registered my business name, and I, or I've, I've, you know, I've incorporated my company name, or uh, I've got this domain name registration, uh, which is the same as my trademark application, but don't I already have protection?" And one thing to really kind of stress and make clear is that the trademark that is the piece that's the property. If you have your trademark as part of your domain name, or as part of your business name, or as part of your uh, company name, simply registering your business name and getting an ABN or incorporating your company through um, uh, the Australian Securities Investment Commission it doesn't give you any protection in that uh, or proper like proprietary protection in what you're registering there. Trademarks, it's the trademark itself, which is the piece of property. And can you have a trademark without it being registered? Because I have heard comments before where somebody said, yes, I, I own the trademark, mm. but it, it wasn't registered. Can you still own a trademark without it being registered? Or does a trademark only come into existence through the registration? Look, it's a, it's, it's a great question. And the answer is, can be kind of both. Um, so you can have common law rights in a trademark. So you can you can start using a trademark today and be using it for the next 10 years. And you may not register it, but it doesn't mean that you don't own that particular I see, trademark. So you can still have enforceable rights, even though you didn't register it. Yeah, what, what registration does, actually, it provides you with a more secure right. Uh, it's something you can point to a specific moment in time or a specific date in time and say, um, as of this day that I filed my trademark application, I've owned this trademark since then. But you can also point to common law and say that prior to this time, I also owned my trademark before then. There's a company, Zulu Smoothies. Sure. And has been doing that for 20 years. It's well known as Zulu Smoothies. And then somebody else comes, registers a trademark under Zulu Smoothies. Does this older company have any rights without then trying to register a trademark or is it more that they need to register a trademark to enforce any rights but because they have used it for 20 years their position is stronger with respect to re registering this trademark in comparison to the new company that's coming in yeah look there's a there's a number of points there that can be touched upon so um, in Australia we're not a first to file System. Yes, because China is. I saw a video yeah. from IP Australia about China's first to file rule. Yeah, so that's not the system that we have here in Australia. Now, if, if someone has been operating in the marketplace for 20 years under a particular brand, but they haven't registered their trademark, they 
will have avenues to oppose the acceptance of that registration and and one of those one of the one of those avenues under opposition will be able to say well hey I was actually the first user of this particular trademark but can they enforce their rights without getting a trademark themselves or is it is it only that they have certain preferences with respect to the application but they don't really have any enforceable rights until they have their trademark registered so something that i think um we should be clear here is that a trademark is so a trademark comes into a, like if you start using something to distinguish your uh, goods and services from those of other people then you have the makings of a trademark i see so you basically have a trademark as soon as you start using a certain name if you're using a brand to yeah to set apart your goods then then you've already started using a trademark to register that trademark is another is something that ip australia looks at and and we have accepting a trademark onto the registry which provides you with that secure right that point in time that you can point to and say i have owned my trademark from this point and this enforceable right So if Zulu Smoothies never attempted to register a trademark would they be able to enforce their rights or they can only enforce their rights if they go down the path of registering their trademark I think again they could try and enforce things from a common law perspective but they would have a stronger position if they register their trademark a much stronger position if they register the trademark. Not only then do you have a registration that provides you with this intangible or sort of a registration of this intangible piece of property and you're you're the registered owner of it, uh, what it also does is that it puts its place there on the register and if there are other people who come in and try and apply for a trademark that is similar to yours but and in a similar industry or similar goods and services, then your trademark will be raised as a barrier to their acceptance. That's another way in which um, the register helps protect those who have registered their trademark. So let's say Zulu Smoothies, the old operator of Zulu Smoothies, doesn't realize that a new operator of Zulu Smoothies has applied for a trademark, doesn't oppose it, it goes through, the new operator gets the trademark. Can then the old operator still dispute this or once the new operator got the trademark through, then that's it. They have the right of Zulu Smoothies. If the old operator of Zulu Smoothies has uh, registered Zulu Smoothies, um, then... No, they haven't. They never knew of trademarks. They never went down that way. They thought having their business name is all they need. They may find themselves in a very difficult position there. Yes. Uh, it's Because once the trademark is through, that's it. Then it's very difficult to dispute it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that that's it. I mean, there, as I said, there are a range of options that the are available. It's probably never that's it. There's always a range of options available. Um, and again, a, a lot of them have to do like with the court's discretion. So the court can exercise its authority or its will over, over a situation. If an application has been made, the sort of a relevant application has been made to the court under a relevant section, then they can exercise oh, their... So the court could still go and deregister a registered trademark under their discretion yeah. if they think there is enough basis to Yeah, and the, and the registrar will be guided by the court's discretion. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Because an accountant is in a unique position with their clients, they know exactly what their clients are making money on, then in understanding trademarks and the trademark registration system a little bit better, then they can be in a, in a good position to sort of tell their, their clients which way to go in terms of the registration. So, I mean, it kind of yeah, ties in. Value. Yeah, and, and sort of make sure that they're providing some information to their clients about um, what it is that their clients are looking to protect. There are 45 classes. classes. Um, the first 34 have to do with goods Good. and the, the from 35 up to 45 deal with services. So let's just use an accountancy example. So tax accountancy falls in class 35. So if, if someone is uh, only providing a tax accountancy service, uh, then um, that that's really where their brand lies. They, they may advertise or they may provide... In the course of their business, they may look to advertise or or create brochures or, or things like promotional material, those lines. But 
They're not really offering that advertising service to a third party or to another party. That's just what's happening. So they don't need to then also include advertising services or they don't need to include printed materials as goods because really where they're making their money is through providing advice or doing tax accountancy services. And that's only class 35. And that's only class 35. So in knowing that and being able to think about that from their client's perspective as well, they can save their clients hundreds of dollars on protection that they may not necessarily need. Is that where you see most of the mistakes coming through? the wrong classes or far too many classes being applied for? Yeah, if there's no limit, we don't put a limit on what an applicant can apply for. But certainly you need to use your trademark in order to keep the protection of it. If you're applying broadly and you're not using it in relation to those broader topics or those broader items, then you're paying extra money and you're also risking someone else coming in and saying, well, you're not using it for this, so I'd like to remove your trademark for these classes. Once a trademark has been registered, there is always a possibility that someone may come in and apply to have it removed for non-use. Uh, non-use, which is, that yeah, was the which word is, I was looking for, yeah. Which is called a removal application. A removal application. The more classes you apply for, the more vulnerable you are to removal applications because you're not using it in that class. If you aren't using it in that class, while you have the option to go as broad as possible, sometimes really picking your specific goods of interest or services of interest can be the most affordable, but also the wisest or the smartest way to proceed forward. Yes, because it's easier to defend a small patch of grass than to <laughs> defend a huge meadow. Indeed. I mean, particularly if you're not tending to the rest of the meadow. I mean, the other thing to remember too is that there's nothing stopping you applying for... If you do decide to expand your brand into different products or different services, then there's nothing stopping you in future for applying for the same trademark, just in different goods and services. There's nothing stopping you. If I want to apply for a trademark, can you walk me through the process? You'd create an e-services account, of course, because IP Australia... So you go on the IP Australia website? Yep. Uh -huh. Unless, of course, you go through a trademark attorney and he does it all for you or she does it all for you. Yeah. But if you do it yourself, then you go into IP Australia. You jump onto IP Australia and you access e-services through the IP Australia website. Once you've created an account there, it'll give you a list of options, and one of those would be to apply for a trademark. So you can also use Trademark Assist, where it's an intuitive system that seems to sort of step you through all the, the processes in applying for a trademark. And is that relatively new? It's a very new initiative, mm -hmm. yeah. And how do you get into it? You get to it through the IP Australia website? It'll be accessible through the IP mm -hmm. Australia website, yeah. I mean, Trademark Assist provides you with a pretty good uh, sort of um, takes you by the hand and walks you through the steps. Yeah. And I think the first step is that you put in your name and then it brings up all the other but, trademarks that yeah. already exist and are similar to this name. Trademark Assist can do that, but you can also do that yourself. You can jump onto the Australian Trademark Search System. We've just rolled out a brand new system that's quite good. Because it allows you to show the results in the way you want it. An examiner will look at two main areas or well, there are two main tests that a trademark examiner will apply when assessing an application and this is whether or not the term is something what other traders would like to use we call that a descriptive term the classic example that we use is apple can get a trademark for computers because it's not descriptive of computers but if you tried to trademark an apple for apples then you're going to run into a fit like a few issues because we can't grant an exclusive or it's very difficult to get the exclusive rights to the word that is the thing that you are selling. I always had generic term in my head, but generic term is not a trademark term. You use the word descriptive term. Yes, descriptive term is, is something that's come about through case law and it's something that we apply or that we use to indicate a term that is generic to the industry. So we were at the process of registration. We go onto the IP Australia website. We start with Trademark Assist, who takes us by the hand, walks us through the process. The first step is that we enter the trademark we want, and then it will bring up any trademarks that are similar. But we can also go into the Trademark Search website and get a better understanding of what's already out there. Yeah. But once we 
nailed this down and we know this is what we want and there's nothing close that could impede our application, then I think the next step is that we need to choose the classes we want to apply for. Yep. And then I think there's what you call a pick list. Yes, the pick list is a set of terms within the relevant class or classes that we have determined is acceptable in that class. So if you use the pick list or if an application comes through that has picked goods and services from the pick list, then it's not something that an examiner needs to go through and check to make sure that those goods can correctly belong in that class or those services can belong in that class. One, it provides an easier examination and two, it's also cheaper. Using the pick list is a cheaper process to apply for the trademark. And then once you choose a class, it doesn't cover you for everything that's listed in that class. It only covers you for the um, sub-items you choose in that Absolutely, class. Absolutely, yeah. So wouldn't it be then better to just choose as many sub-items as possible in that class? Because you only pay per class yep. whether you choose one sub-item or whether you use 45 sub-items. It's the same price. It is the same price. Again, we still run into that uh, class can cover a range of different things. So let's use class 35 that we were talking about just earlier. Class 35 deals with accountancy services, but it also covers marketing and promotional services. Um, it covers advertising services. Sure, you could apply for any, but you are then starting to... Spread it really thin and your application is more likely to be rejected. Not necessarily rejected. I mean, again, it depends on the trademark that you're applying for. But if you are including goods and services that you don't actually use your brand for, you're not actually engaging in that service, then you run the risk that sometime, at some point in the future... Like you may get it registered, but at some point in the future, if you're not using it... Somebody might lodge a removal application. Someone might try and re like, like remove the trademark for those particular services. But is your decision a yes or no, or do you go back to the applicant and say, listen, mate, <laughs> maybe don't apply for 45 subtitles, maybe <laughs> cut it down a bit? Do you go back or do you just make a pure yes and no decision? I'll, I'll run you through quickly um, yes. what happens with the examination process, and that, yes. might, that might provide a little bit of context to you. So... We'll get the application that will come in and let's just say the trademark is for profitable tax services. That trademark application comes in. And is doomed because it's a descriptive term. <laughs> um, yeah, look, certainly. So what we, what we do is we would, um, we would see what it's coming in for. It's coming in, of course, for class 35 for accounting services and tax and sort of tax accountancy. We'd look at that and we'd, we'd make sure that the formalities of the application are okay. So one, is the owner able to hold trade? Like, does they have the, the necessary legal personality or identity to hold a trademark? So who wouldn't have a legal identity to hold a trademark? Some of the common ones that we, that we see will be people who say profitable tax trust. But what we're actually looking for is profitable tax trust PTY LTD. Yeah, you're looking for the corporate trustee. Yeah, exactly. So if it is a trust, then it's the trustee who like holds the property on trust. Or if it's an individual, say it, it needs to come in in my full name. Or if it's a, a company, um, then it needs to come in in the company name. So we double check and make sure that the tax can fall in class 35. They haven't claimed something outside of that particular class. And then what we do is we'd look at whether or not the mark is generic or it's the, a descriptive term. In this instance, we'd probably find that profitable tax services is something that other traders would honestly uh, like to use in the course of trade. And then we'd also look to see whether or not there are other marks on the register that are similar to that particular trademark. Now, because I've selected a descriptive trademark, it's a little bit difficult. It's unlikely that there's going to be a similar trademark on there. But let's say there is another trademark on there for profitable tax services, but it's being registered for marketing and promotional services. If the new applicant comes in and they've claimed broadly for marketing and promotional services, then we'll go back and say, well, look, marketing and promotional services might it's not... It's already taken? Yeah, it's already taken, but it might not necessarily be the same as tax accountancy services. So what we'll do in order to overcome that particular barrier, if you agree to remove those particular services from your specification, then you're operating in different fields. And so even though they're identical, the trademarks can There's coexist. Different services. Yeah, they can coexist. That's a terrible example, I'm just going to say. Because it's a descriptive term, hence they won't be able to yeah. register it anyway. Um, but if you use something else... We'll run that example as well. So if Zulu smoothies came up 
for examination. It's probably for beverages in class 32. It might also be for promotional services in class 35. Let's just say... Uh, Somebody else has already Zulu. That's exactly right. If someone else already has Zulu in class 32, then we'd write back and say, well, unfortunately, your trademark would be considered too similar to this one here. Provide us with some evidence to show that you've been using before that earlier trademark. And if you can't do that, then agree to remove beverages claim and you can proceed with marketing and promotional services. And then it's really up to the applicant to decide whether or not... I presume that with the brand's Zulu Smoothies, um, they're really more interested in the beverages side of things. And then they can decide whether or not they wish to proceed just under Class 35. The likelihood is they won't because it's not really the, the particular market that they're interested in. So you actually do go back to the applicant and you advise on how to make it fit? Uh, I wouldn't say that we advise. We're not allowed to give... It's, it's not that we give advice. We provide options, though. We say that this is one way that you can overcome this hurdle. Here is another option that you can do. So it's walking that fine line between protecting what's there on the register already, but also like assisting the applicant to register their trademark as well. So Zuli Smoothies adjusts their application and they are class 32 beverages is class 32? Is well, that what we've, you... we've asked them to remove class 32. Uh, remove class 32 and then now they're just in the beverages class. You will know what that is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so they've removed the conflicting services or the conflicting goods. And then because we've said, well, you can proceed if you agree to one of the options that we provided, then we can recommend the trademark for acceptance. Okay, so that's the next step. You yep. recommend the trademark for acceptance, and yep. then I think it gets published or something, doesn't it? Yeah, so then there's a two-month period in which the, the trademark gets advertised in the journal or the gazette. Who reads that? <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> um, but it gets advertised there, and then... That advertisement period is also the, the time in which a third party can object. Can object. But it is unlikely that a normal tax accountant or a normal business person would be reading the uh, Gazette on a regular basis to see whether any trademarks are coming through. Look, Don't you think? Look, whether they do or whether they don't, we're not an enforcement agency. When we write out a report to an applicant, we're really just providing the information to the applicant and saying, these are the barriers that you need to um, uh, overcome. We leave it to trademark owners or intellectual property owners to enforce their rights. Asked differently, mm. do you see a lot of objections while it is published? And my gut feeling is that you don't because nobody reads the Gazette. <laughs> But I might be wrong. I can imagine for small businesses, the biggest hurdle is for you to accept it. Once it's in the Gazette, unlikely that anybody else sees it. Do you see a lot of objections during the period that it is published? Once the examiner has recommended a trademark application for acceptance, that really starts a new phase of things. So that's when it moves into the opposition period. I see. So then it moves to a different table. That process is sort of my area that I'm in at the moment. And if someone notices that there's a trademark that's been accepted and they feel it shouldn't have been accepted because it's breaching their intellectual property, then they can apply to oppose that registration. And that kicks off the process on the hearings and opposition side. But if it doesn't get objected, then after two months, It proceeds to registration. Registration. Yep. And, and then one receives a nice cardboard. Yeah, so then, then we... gives the trademark in a big, bold letters. Yeah, we issue out a certificate of registration. I know some applicants who have said that they've framed that before, and I think, I think it's a nice thing to do. When I received a trademark, I felt like framing it. I didn't, but I felt like it. Yeah. <laughs> I've never applied for a trademark myself, so I actually like hearing stories of, of trademark applicants and mm. what their experience has been. The first trademark we actually registered to protect ourselves, to protect ourselves from somebody else saying you can't use that name. But I guess that ties into what I was saying earlier in, in as much as the registration of the trademark provides the registered owner with that security. What is not possible to register? We touched on descriptive terms, yes. but is there anything else? In terms of the descriptive terms, there will be some things you can't register soap for soap. It's just, it's going to be too difficult. And you probably can't register swear words. That takes us into a, like a different area. So I was talking about trademarks that might be similar and generic terms. So the generic terms aspect is under section 41 of the act and 
trademarks that might be similar under Section 44 of the Act. But swear words, we class them as scandalous, uh, and that's under 42 of, of tra- Section 42 of the Act. And so, so a mark that is either contrary to law or scandalous is not something that we can accept swear words being a great example. And then we also have another thing called prescribed signs. And so there are certain prescribed signs that won't be available. You can't trademark protein or neutron or... A prescribed sign is more something like... A prescribed sign, sign as an S-I-G-N. Yeah, sorry. Classic example that we use is, have you ever seen the little registered, so Mm -hmm. in a circle with the R? If a trademark application comes in with that little registered symbol, we won't accept it. We'll ask them to remove that little registered symbol because that registered symbol is something that just cannot be registered. Uh, cannot is not. We will not accept a trademark with that symbol in it. It's not an official symbol of anything, is it? Oh, it is. The symbol itself indicates that the trademark is registered. Oh, I see. It doesn't say TM in a circus? Sometimes you can have TM. Uh, uh, TM is not something that we enforce as much as the registered side of things, uh, simply okay. because... TM indicates that someone is using that particular word as a trademark, whereas registered is actually indicating that they have that word registered. So I could put a TM onto a word that I don't actually have registered as a trademark. If you were trying to use something as a trademark and you want to like, indicate to people in the marketplace that you are using something as a trademark, then that's why you see people put the little TM on I see, but it doesn't mean that it's registered. No, only that, that little registered symbol means oh, okay. that it's registered. Swear words are one of those things that we would have to look at closely again and one of the things that we try and be aware of is that we're not the arbiters of good taste things that will clearly cause offense or are likely to offend or incite that means that we need to have awareness of current affairs um as well because you know the if there's certain tragedies or things like that that may occur, then mm. we need to be mindful, like we need to know what they mm. are because if someone tries to trademark that particular tragedy, it, we've got to be mindful mm. of these things. How much does it cost? Yeah, okay, so that's that's the big question, isn't it? And, and look, it'll really depend on which way you go. So... We've been talking about things from a standard application perspective. Standard application at the moment, if you're using the pick list, will cost $250 per class. We do have another service, though. It's our trademark Head Start service. And this is a quick turnaround service. So what happens is that it's a it's initial or a pre-examination of a trademark application, though it is a little bit more expensive. So it's $330 for each class for that but it's broken up into two steps. You pay your initial fee for the pre-assessment, and that means that a, a trademark examiner will look at your Head Start application and will get an answer to you as to the acceptability of that trademark uh, within five business days. Because it's a pre-published application, it also means that... It doesn't go on the record. It doesn't go on the record, so it, it, it well, it's not there on the register for others to see, so it means that there are more things that can be changed. There's a broader scope in which to assist the applicants in that instance in in getting something that they want. After that five business days, now we we enforce that very strictly, so it's that five business days in which they get a report. Uh, Once they receive that report, they have five business days again to, the applicant has five business days again to determine whether or not they want to proceed with that application. Once they say yes, they pay their part two fee and that converts it from a Head Start application into a standard application, and it's from the day that they pay that Part 2 fee that they get their priority date. But it means then that they already have an idea of what hurdles or whether or not their trademark is going to be accepted. And it is true, my last application was a Head Start application, and it is true. I think I received a phone call within two or three three days. Yeah. And it was helpful because then I just threw all my questions at the... Uh, examiner yeah um, i mean he, he basically taught me don't bother about it. <laughs> it was still good to well, talk uh, it all through that's the thing uh, because the, when you go through the normal application you don't really get to talk to the examiner you just receive a letter that then says this is this hurdle or do examiners usually call the applicant if there's a hurdle it's a lot longer you might get a phone call three or four months later well, with a standard application it's more likely that an examiner will issue out if they if they come across an objection or if they come across something that's that needs to be fixed they'll more likely just issue a report the thing about a head start is that you can the applicant can specify whether they want to be called before Getting, they can they can request a call from the um, yes. the trademark examiner. I can imagine that 
um, the Head Start application can really help with the selection of classes because the classes are actually really confusing. Not so much choosing the classes itself, but looking at the sub-items. As an example, for tax, uh, for tax agents, you have class 35, but then you also have class 36. Mm-hmm. And it's actually really confusing for somebody who is not familiar with it to work out, should it be a class 35 or should it be a class 36? Let's say you apply immediately for three or four classes, you pay more money than if you just apply for a head start and then the head start tells you actually you should change it to this. If they apply for four classes uh, and an examiner conducts an assessment on those four classes, even if the examiner tells them to remove two classes or three classes, the applicant can't turn around and say, well, can I have my money refunded for those classes? We've already done the I see, assessment. So you, I see. So you need to pay a head start fee for every class you apply. Yep. I see. Okay. So, um, but I mean, look, I'll be the first to say that there is a lot of, that, that there can be a lot of overlap between services in one class and services in another class. And that's why, you know, sometimes you'll get a report from an examiner who will say that your class 35 services are similar to services that might be in class 42 or might be in class 25 for goods. Like, so part of the examination process is we understand that there are industries which overlap with each other and that basically means if you're applying for a trademark in a class that may overlap with another set of services in another class or another set of goods in another then you need two classes you may get a report saying your trademark is too similar to this already registered trademark for these particular goods and that's because we recognize that there are similarities that's where applying really really broadly even in a particular class may mean that you're casting the net a bit wider. So it may mean that one of those services that you've claimed for could be similar to some goods in another class or similar to some services in another class. And you'll get a report from an examiner saying, well, this, this thing, this thing that you've claimed is, is similar to this other trademark. When I looked at class 36 and class 37, there are some things that are almost identical, like tax consultancy financial <laughs> and tax advice financial. I think anybody who's not a trademark attorney would have no idea what the difference is between a tax consultancy and tax advice. I think that they're that they're probably identical. They're very similar services. So the sub-items in these classes quite often say the same thing. Yes, yes. So, I mean, in, I mean class nine is a good example. There's... So many different, there's computer programs, computer software, um, software, uh, computer applications, applications. You've often got terms, subterms within a class that will be identical to each other mm. at times. And it's enough to just pick one of them to apply. You don't have to pick every sub-item that, or in every term that yes. vaguely describes what you're doing. It's a matter of preference for the applicant. An applicant may feel secure in just picking one of those terms or they may wish to grab all of the sort of associated or relevant terms. And then the second question is, and, you know, this gets very specific now for tax accountants, but in class 36, everything says a lot of the, the relevant terms say mm-hmm. have financial in brackets, whereas in class 35, it doesn't. So does it mean that class 36 is more for financial advisors, whereas class 35 is more for the standard bookkeeping, tax advice, not going near financial advice? Yeah, you've, you've kind of nailed it on the head, actually. So class 36 primarily is a financial is a financial class. Um, people who are offering financial services, like advice in relation to money and investing, those kinds of things, they'd be looking in class 36. For those who are looking to in the bookkeeping side of things or they're, they're giving you know advice on, ta- on filling out a tax return or something like that, that would be your more administrative class 35 side of things. I should say it doesn't mean though that just because they're in different classes that the same person or the same business may not offer both. And that's that's what we mean about, you know, sometimes you'll get services in one class that'll be considered the same or closely related to another the services in another class. Yes. So a tax accountant who provides tax advice but also has an AFS license should apply for class 35 and class 36. If they are providing financial advice as well as tax uh, as well as tax advice then yeah um, then that if that's where they're making their money then they certainly should be applying in both those classes.
among accountants, it's very common to use a surname and then the word partners. So okay. Rosen Partners, Smith Partners, yep. etc. Can you trademark that? A surname and the word partners? Can yeah. you trademark that? It's an interesting question because what we're dealing with there is we're dealing with a surname and we're dealing with a, a generic term such as group or partners or firm. The questions that we need to ask ourselves are, is this a common surname? Smith, something like Smith would be quite a common surname and it's fairly uh, it's fairly well understood that um, as you say there are there are lots of people um, in various different industries that like to put their last name as part of their brand or as part of their business and so if you apply for a common surname and a generic term the likelihood that another trader with a similar surname in that particular service is likely going to want to do the same thing. So we kind of we'd be raising a, a descriptive or a, and a surname objection in that in that instance. So you can't trademark Smith Partners or Miller and oh, Miller and Smith. If you're starting again, it, it depends on the the commonness of the. If you're putting two common surnames together, I mean, we're moving further away from that the likelihood of other traders needing to put exactly those two surnames exactly together. those two uh, but as part of the examination we are looking at how common those surnames are the flip side is if you've got a very distinct surname or uncommon surname then you're unlikely to run into those particular objections so if your surname is Abu Shandani then you probably can trademark your surname if your surname is Miller then you can't and then it gets complicated because you might have somebody from another country with a very common surname in that country, which is not common in Australia. The question that we have to ask ourselves, the test that we have to apply, uh, is whether or not another trader is likely uh, in the course of their business to honestly wish to use that particular phrase or that particular term to distinguish their goods or services. And you can't tell somebody not to use the, their surname. If we're granting an exclusive right uh, for a particular phrase or word or something and it's something it's something that other traders legitimately need to use or legitimately desire to use so surnames are probably always a bit of a difficult yeah the, you raised the example yeah you raised the example of surnames because and if that's somebody a, if somebody has that surname likelihood is that somebody else has the same surname Possibly. Uh, like it is, as I said, it, there's a range of factors that, that we need to uh, think about. The really easy ones being if it's a common surname, then the more, the more common it is, the more likely other people are going to need or honestly wish to use it in the course of trade um, to distinguish their goods or their business or their services. Um, if it's a not so common surname, then possibly uh, there's there's more of a scope to accept that particular surname. Yeah. But again, there's a range of factors that need to be considered. Another question regarding yeah. descriptive terms. If somebody has been using a descriptive term for 20 years, are they then able to trademark it because they've used it for 20 years or a descriptive term is always barred because it's a descriptive term and yeah. time doesn't change that? You're asking some poignant questions at the moment. This is, it's, it's a fascinating area of law in as much as the, the test under Section 41, that descriptive test, we're rarely ever going to say you cannot have this particular trademark. It's, it's very rare for that to occur. But what, what does happen is that something can be so generic or so descriptive of a particular thing, think computer for computers, that the likelihood that anyone could ever register that trademark or provide enough evidence to show that any anybody out there would look at the word computer and say, oh, that indicates this person brand, this person's brand, rather than a description of the a computer, is so remote and so unlikely that the chance of someone registering that is just not it's not it's not a real chance. Mm -hmm. And do you always look at the whole of Australia? So let's say there is let's say there's a small business that uses a descriptive term quite actively in a local area, and in that local area. People know, yes, that's this business. But if you go anywhere outside of this local area, nobody will think of that business. Everybody will just think of the descriptive term yeah. as the descriptive term. Do you then look at the local area or do you look at all of Australia to decide whether it goes it's beyond a, just being a descriptive it's term? It's a great trademark. And the thing that people need to remember is that uh, trademark registration is a national registration. You always need to keep in mind that when you're applying for a trademark, you're applying for a trademark that will be 
national, like registered on the national register. If your trademark fall, comes onto the register, then you're protected nationally. Yes. And so a descriptive term could only overcome the hurdle of being a descriptive term if anybody, anywhere in Australia, would look at that term and think of that business. That's the crucial That's the crucial thing, and that's why we request evidence in those situations. Yeah. The fact that a few people in that local area would think of that business doesn't qualify. Probably not. It will depend. Again, it depends on the circumstances. Yeah, it will depend on the circumstances. It depends on the evidence that they've put forward um, to us. What are common trademark mistakes you see on a daily basis? Yes, yeah, so or on we, a weekly or monthly yeah. basis. <laughs> Look, I've, I've looked at a lot of trademark applications in my time. Um, so you know, certainly. Uh, Uh, we've, we've spoken about this before. It's, you know, getting the classes right. And there's a lot of outreach that IP Australia do to assist um, uh, applicants in getting their right classes. Some of the mistakes that I commonly see too have to do with that um, formalities side of things. So where we get uh, people who apply for a trademark in the name of a trust and we all have to write out and say, well, we can't accept this in the name of a trust. We need to accept it um, in the name of the trustee. And so we request that the information or the details of the trustee be provided to us. Another one which uh, is is kind of interesting, um, and it comes about, I think, from just an unfamiliarity with the system, and that's often sometimes, uh, often, sorry, uh, an applicant will think, well, I only want one class, so I'll apply in class one. And and it, look, it, it happens, and it, it's sort of it's so when you think about it, it is a really easy mistake to make. But of course, you know, class one deals with chemicals and those really unprocessed materials. So you know, when we're getting a class one claim for education services and um, entertainment services and clothes, and you know, an examiner yeah, no. has to look at that and they'll. But and, now that you now that you mentioned it, I think it's it's an honest. You know, it's it's a mistake that's actually not that far-fetched. Yeah, it, it really isn't. It's an easy mistake to make, particularly if you decide that you don't want to use the pick list service and you want to apply or specify your own goods and services, which is an option. It, it just means then that what's going to happen is an examiner will get this and go, well... This claim goes in this class, this claim goes in this class, this claim goes in this so class. So you're corrected. You tell the client, you, you tell the applicant, and then do they have to pay again? Yeah. Oh, they have to pay again. Yeah, so before they can proceed, if they want all of those particular goods, um, all of a sudden a... Um, so it's an expensive mistake to it, make. It can be I expensive, mean, you know, yeah. $250, but still. Yeah, so I think, again, I think it's a little bit more, and I, I can't remember off the top of my oh, head. Oh, yeah, but when you don't use the pick list. Yeah, it's, it's a little expensive. bit more if you don't use the pick list. So again, another another reason why we sort of promote the pick list is because it's, one, it's cheaper, and two, you kind of, you're not going to fall into that mistake. But otherwise, those are, those are really the, the ones that sort of mm. pop up. So the biggest... The biggest mix mistake is then the wrong class, either picking class one or just picking the wrong class is full stop. Do most applications cover a goods and a services class or do you usually see applications that are only in goods or services or do you see a lot of mixed applications? And second question straight away. Yeah. Do most applications only apply for one class or do most applications apply for two classes? I can sort of say from my own personal experience, I find that a lot of applications will normally have one to two classes. Um, it's not it's not often that you get something that's got four or five, or six or seven classes. Um, I have examined a trademark before that's claimed in every single class. Um, 45 classes. In 45 classes. Um, uh, That was a long examination, um, but, you know, it was, I think on average, like from my personal experience, I think, you know, mostly one to two classes. And w I couldn't tell you what the split is between yeah. whether it's two goods classes or two services classes or okay. a mix between those two. I think it really depends on, I will say there are some common pairings. I think that's probably, um, so, you know, if you're a software developer and you're developing a piece of software, then... Uh, but you also offer developments like development uh, software development services as a service. Um, then sometimes you'll find, like you'll often find that they will apply in class nine and class forty two. Mm -hmm. So nine forty two is a common 
combination. The software, yeah, that, that's a common, that's a sort of a common pairing that I've seen before. If you're cosmetics and pharmaceutical, sort of those crossing the line into, you know, cosmetics which have pharmaceutical properties and pharmaceuticals which have cosmetic properties, then another common pairing will be things in class three and class five. So yeah, you see a lot of common pairings, but again, that's, so the class nine is a, a goods and a, or the, that class nine and 42 example is a goods and a service, but then class three and class five are two goods classes. So it, it really depends on, on what you're getting. does a trademark actually last? So a, a trademark, it's one of the only registered rights that lasts in perpetuity. Um, so Really? Yeah. So like once you've got it registered, your renewal for registration will come up 10 years down the track. But and you then can, you have to pay again? You've got to pay again or you pay your renewal fee, but then you just, you can continue renewing that. Mm. It's not like, it's, it's not, not like, like a trust that has a rule against perpetuity well, that it can uh, only last for 99 years. Yeah, I was going to say it's not like copyright or it's not like patents where there's a specified time limit upon which those registrations can be in place. Trademarks goes on in perpetuity. Oh, I see. So patents you can't renew indefinitely. Patents, I think it's 25 years is the life of a patent. And then that's it. And then that's it. Same with, I think, copyright from memory is 75 years after the death of the author. Yet once the, the creator of the copyright um, dies, then set, like there's a 75-year clock, and then there's no longer copyright on that particular creation. I see. Mm. But trademarks... So long as you, yeah, so long as you pay your renewal fee. And that's why... But, but it makes it quite affordable because it means you get your trademark for 10 years you pay 250 dollars mm -hmm. so you basically pay 25 dollars per year yeah for, well if you're just getting one class absolutely it's also worth keeping in mind that you are applying for something that you can have forever and so you know for particularly self-represented applicants the idea of engaging a trademarks attorney or a firm or something to handle your application may seem very expensive And it, and it is, you know, it can be a, a high initial upfront cost, but given that it's something that you have protection for forever, if you continue paying your fees, then over the course of that, that time period, you know, that upfront cost sort of, it evens out a lot more. If I didn't choose the right class to start with, mm -hmm. then I can't go back and change my application. I need to apply again yeah. and pay again. It depends on which service or which particular avenue ah, you yes, go down. Ah, yes, with the Head Start you can. Yeah, but so with that's where Head Start can be a bit a bit more beneficial. So I think for a bit of background, what happens when, if you apply for a standard trademark, uh, once you've put that uh, standard application, I should say, once you've put that application in, it's published to the register, which means that it's publicly available. And that means that other people can look at that and make business decisions based on that information that's contained there. Uh, or to be fair to those people who are looking and relying upon the information in the register, we kind of say that once you've published something to the register, there are only very minor changes um, that can be made. It's unlikely that you'll be able to expand the scope of the registration, so add a class or completely change your class, but you can refine within, like you can refine down. The sub-items. The sub-items. You can refine the sub-items, but you can't change the class. Yep, and heavily emphasizing the word refining because you can't expand within the class either. Say you have applied for... Tech uh, services, then you can't expand then to advertising services once you've applied. Exactly, yeah. That's where it differs a little bit with, with the Head Start. Because the Head Start is a pre-examination, it's, it's something that's not published straight away to the register. It means you don't get your priority date straight away, but it's not published straight to the register. So that it's means more flexible. it's more flexible in terms of actually getting or helping the applicant get what they want. Welcome back. I'm quite impressed how much effort IP Australia puts into making it easier for us to apply for a trademark registration ourselves. The new trademark search platform, trademark assist, the Head Start program, the educational videos 
and an upcoming complete revamp of the IP Australia website. All these initiatives mean that most of us can probably apply for a trademark without engaging a trademark attorney. Over the next few episodes, we will talk about trusts, starting with the very basics and then working our way into the more complicated areas. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.